So today we're looking at the 11th lesson in our winter quarter. The title, title of the lesson is Esther's Choice. And the scriptures we're going to be looking at are Esther's chapters 3 and 4. So Lord, we uh, thank you for this book. We thank you for all of your word, which we can rely upon as true. And uh, this uh, historical account of an attack upon the Jewish nation. And uh, we thank you that for your promise to always protect the Jewish nation and how also you give a promise to always protect those of us who are in you eternally. And so we pray that we would understand here how Esther made her choice when it was presented to her. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first section, section A, is Haman wants to destroy the Jews. So we're, they're introducing the villain of the story now, uh, Haman. And that is chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Anybody feel up to reading that section to us? Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, Vicki. Yeah, so... So, you know, this is uh, all, this whole book is providential. The Lord is moving things around providentially. It looks like coincidence. That's usually how our prayers are answered. They look like coincidence. So that the unbelieving can say, oh, it's just a coincidence. <laughs> but anyway, it starts out here after these events. So after what events? The events of the first two chapters, which caused Esther to become queen against her will, uh, providentially. Then um, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. So Haman was now the second in command in Persia, and he was an Agagite. And many interpreters interpret this as being related to Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And that was uh, 600 years earlier, if you remember right. Um, Saul had been charged by God to finish destroying the Amalekites. The Amalekites attacked Israel very soon after they left Egypt. And that was a miraculous win under Joshua. You know, that's when Moses held up his hands, the Jews were winning. When he lowered his hands, they were losing. And at that time, after that, that victory over the Amalekites, the Lord declared that he would be at war with the Amalekites forever, and he would destroy them. And so, you don't want to ha hear that <laughs> from God, because... You know, that will happen. And uh, and so a lot of people say that, that this uh, Haman is from there. But there was also a an area in Media, in the Persian Empire, named Agag. Same name. And so it is 
most probably that he was from there. Uh, he was not a descendant of the Amalekites. He was a Midianite, but he was also an anti-Semite, you know, which makes him similar to the Amalekites. But then the government officials were commanded by the king. I'm going to reread this just for the sake of the people online. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So the government officials were commanded to bow, and Mordecai refused. Why do you think that was? The king, the king got bad too, and uh, you know the Jews would bow to human authorities as a sign of respect. There was, there was nothing in the Mosaic law that said not to do that to bow to the authority out of respect, you know. And we now are instructed to honor our political leaders. But we don't bow. We don't bow to them because that's not our, yeah, that's not our culture okay. to do that. But we respect them. Sometimes it's challenging, but we're to do it anyway uh, because the Lord tells us to. So um, that is where prayer comes in. Yes. So now what's interesting about this is that Mordecai had specifically told Esther not to reveal that she was a Jew. And that was in chapter 2 and verse 10. It says, Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. So there was probably some anti-Semitism in the country. And so Mordecai was warning her. Now, Mordecai, he refused to bow. He refused to bow every day. And his uh, fellow officials, you know, he was an official in the king's gate. That's where they conducted business. Said, why are you transgressing the king's command? You see, so now... So, yeah, anyway, I mean, it was not against the Lord to bow to a Gentile authority. And this triggered in Haman, verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. It, you know, what Mordecai is doing here doesn't make sense. I think it's related to pride. I think it's related to pride. Um, he didn't like this Agag, Be probably because, well, I don't know if he, it had something to relate to the fact that he was a Jew. He said because he was a Jew, and I guess somehow he knew he was an anti-Semite, and so he refused to bow down to him. But look what it triggered, you know. So, I, you know, I think this is just another demonstration that 
they, these Jews who remained in Persia were not really following the Lord. They were following the world. And Mordecai made a boo-boo here. You know, in the end, the Lord made it work out good. But um, he refused to give appropriate honor to a high-ranking, second-in-command in the whole Persian Empire. And I'm sure little... Humili the Lord appreciates humility. He, he calls us to humility, and uh, Mordecai was not demonstrating this now. Um, it was not idolatry to honor a Gentile official. Now, I wrote something down here that might be out of order, but it's there, so I'll say it anyway. So Haman became enraged. And he became so enraged that he didn't want to get Mordecai alone. Mordecai had, well, you sure, surely don't want to respond with uh, killing them all. <laughs> yeah, are you talking about today in today's world? About, well, you know, it is going to come. Like crazy angry? Yeah. 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 No, I, I think, you know, especially for believers, we, sh we should act as the Lord tells us to. You know, we bless those who curse us. Now, um, Mordecai was not cursing Haman. He was just not honoring him the way the king had told him to. The king had told him to honor Haman by bowing to him, and he refused. So, um, so the question is, did Haman know about God's promise of Genesis 12.3 to the Jews when he came up with this plan? And you know what? There's an inkling that he did. At least his family did, because this is when, after Haman thought he was going to be honored, and it came about that Mordecai was honored and Haman had to honor him. And he told his wife about this, and his wife says, Haman recounted to Zeresh his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh his wife said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So they must have known about this promise that God had. But Haman is not thinking right. Now, rage makes you not think right. And so he went on, verse 7, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month, until the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar. So what does that mean? Haman was superstitious, as pagans are. Pagans are superstitious. Okay. And so he was casting lots to decide when to exterminate the Jews, what day would be best to exterminate the Jews. So he had this these lot casts, and the day came up the last month of the year, Adar, on the 13th day of the month. And this was cast on, Nisan, the month Nisan, it was the first of month of the year. So that meant that there were 11 months until this was to happen. 
which would give the Jews a little time to prepare. See, see, the Lord is working this out. And uh, and it was the Pur, and that is, we're going to learn at the end of the book, the holiday Purim, which is one of the Jewish holidays, which commemorates what happens here in this book of Esther. Now, lots are not really just chance, are they? Do we understand this? Yeah, now this is from Proverbs, which we looked at uh, last summer. Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. It is not really chance, the lot. Also, Proverbs 21.30 says, and this is always true, there is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. See, he was planning to annihilate God's people. God's people will never, ever be annihilated. The Jews will never be annihilated into eternity. They cannot be annihilated. That's why they've persisted, even though they've been disbanded from their land and spread out all over the world for 2,000 years and then miraculously came back to the land. And they've been murdered all over the place. But they cannot be stamped out. Why? Because God protects them. And he will not allow them to be stamped out because it's through them that all of his promises come. And he will not go back on his promises. He refuses to do that because that's just not who he is. So... That's the end. Mordecai was too prideful. He made Haman. He he set off a time bomb in Haman. And Haman superstitiously chose a day that's almost a year away to do this. So now we're to section B. Xerxes decrees the Jews' destruction. And that's verses 8 through 15. Anybody want to read that one? Okay. Okay, thank you very much. Verse 8. Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. So what do you notice about this statement? Certain people he doesn't say who they are. Vague. They're scattered and dispersed. There is some truth into it. You know, Satan is very good at mixing truth and error. There is truth to it. He says their laws are different from those of other people. That is true. That is Psalm 147, 19 and 20. He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and for as for his ordinances, they have not known them. The Mosaic law was Israel's. It was not the Gentiles. That made them a separate people. That made them distinct from the other Gentiles, and it made the Gentiles think they were crazy with all their sacrifices and with their odd dress and, you know, all these things. So they did have laws different from those, and then he spoke a lie. 
and they do not observe the king's laws. There is no evidence of that, except for Haman. <laughs> or not for Haman, except for Mordecai, and the specific law about refusing to bow to Haman. You know, And so it's not in the king's interest to let them remain. So that, you know, that's kind of how Satan works. He, he gets, he draws you in with a little bit of truth and then he tells you a lie. Haman was very uh, willing to do this. It says, if it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. You know how much 10,000 talents of silver is? That is 750,000 pounds of silver. That's a lot of silver. 750,000 pounds of silver. So uh, Haman was rich. He was rich and he was willing to spend it to kill the Jews. You know, this goes back to, you know, why is he doing this? I mean, this is crazy. This is part of the angelic conflict. This was one of the times when Satan made a move to get rid of the Messiah. You know, before Jesus was born, there were several attempts to prevent his birth. This is one of them. You know, if you destroy all the Jews, how's the Messiah going to come from Israel? But um, this is Revelation 12, 3 and 4. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head was seven diadems. His tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Those are the demons. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, that is Israel, so that when he gave birth he might devour her child. So those, all of the attempts to eradicate the Jews, and there were several before Jesus was born, where Satan trying to, Satan has ever since Genesis 3.15, when the Lord said, there's one coming from a woman that will crush your head, has been working to defeat that prophecy. That is his singular focus, because he is the God of this world right now, and he likes it, and he wants to keep it that way. Yeah, German, you know, uh, Hitler and his henchmen were deeply involved in the occult. They were demonically motivated. And so that was an attempt. See, the Messiah has come. He has done his job of salvation for the world. So the only thing that will prevent the kingdom to come when Satan is locked up is if the Jews are annihilated so that they cannot call their Messiah back. That's what's happening now. That's what was happening with Hitler. He wanted to annihilate the Jews. If the Jews are not there, they cannot. The Gentile, we can't call them back. We, that's not how it works. The Gentiles cannot call Jesus back. We're not his people. His own people have to call him back to accept him as their king which they failed to do the first time he showed up, you know. So that's, and that's why anti, you know, as time goes toward the end, it's the anti-Semitism is going to ratchet up to intense levels because Satan wants to stop that prophecy. 
So look at verse 10 and 11 and the king's response to this. King didn't ask him who he's talking about. It says, Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadath, of the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, The silver is yours, and the people also do to, to do with them as you please. So the king kind of just shrugged his shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't ask who they were. He said, You don't have to pay the treasury. You just keep it. Do what you want. <laughs> you, know? you just do what you want. So, you know, this uh, Ahasuerus was a terrible king. He was just awful. And we learn in history eventually, you know, not too long after this, uh, this uh, you know, account, he was assassinated by his uh, court. But he was not a good king. But yet the Lord used him. So, um, yeah, he just shrugs it off. As his uh, second-in-command proposes genocide. Oh, now, this is where I wrote down what I wanted to ask before. So when is it legitimate to disobey the laws of the government? We saw that there was a command from the king for the officials to bow to Haman. Mordecai refused to obey that command. When is it legitimate to disobey the laws of the government? There are some times when it is legitimate. Exactly, exactly. If they if they tell you to go against God's will and you are a disciple of the Lord, you ignore it. You don't make a big deal about it. You know, just like Daniel, there was a law made that you can pray, except to the king. Daniel didn't make a big fuss. He just ignored the law. And he continued to pray to the Lord as he had. You know, that's what we should do. Um, you know, like this this lockdown and COVID and, and saying you can't go to church. We should never have closed the church. We should never have done that. That was a that was a fault of ours. I never even knew that they did that. They they did that. They well, yeah, I, I actually I don't know if it was a law to close it down. I think it was. The church. We closed down the church for three months here. And uh, some closed it down for a long, long time because of fear of a virus. Okay? The Lord commands us to meet. Can we, he protect us? Yes, he can. You know? So anyway, but, and, you know, that's what uh, Peter and the early apostles were saying when they were commanded to stop evangelizing. They said, uh, sorry, it's God's command. <laughs> We have to do it. So, you know, now when you do stuff like that, you may face the consequences. You just have to be willing to face it. So that it is legitimate. That's called civil disobedience, and it's legitimate. That is why, you know, regarding the COVID thing, everybody hated the masks. It's been proven time and time and time again, multiple studies, that the masks make no difference against a virus. But the government commanded it. And that is why our policy here at the church was to wear the mask because the government commanded it and the Lord did not speak against it. So that is why we did it. Not because we believed it was right. <laughs> I did not believe it was right. I thought it was silly. 
And it's been proved that that is true. You cannot stop a virus with a mask. So, um, but the government commanded it. So in honor to God, who tells us to obey the government, we, we did do it. And we got flack from some for doing that. You know, at least one person I know left our church because of that. Because they didn't want to wear the mask. And uh, I, what do you do? You just, you have to follow the Lord and let the chips fall where they may. I, I feel very bad about us closing the church. Okay, verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. So he's made, making it all official now. It was sent out on the 13th day of the first month, the month Nisan. So the Jews now had 11 months to prepare. Now, at first, they're just going to be shocked here. And this is the same as in the message concerning Vashti's um, de being de deposed as queen. It was written in all of the languages, so everybody would know. So this went out to Jerusalem, too. Jerusalem was in Persia, part of Persia. At this time, they were under Ahasuerus. You know, he was their king. And so this decree that you were going to come and kill all of you <laughs> came out to Jerusalem and to Judah, as well as everywhere else. Um, and then verse 13, this is how vicious it was. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions. So there's a motive for the people who are going to do it. We can take all their stuff if we kill them, and no one will come against us. So then verse 15 the couriers went out, impelled by the king's command, while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And then look at this response of the people. While the king and Haman sat down to drink, so they were having a little afternoon uh, cocktail, the city of Susa was in confusion. They're like, what? <laughs> what is going on here? <laughs> yeah, so... I don't even know what to say. You know, they're they're just shocked, and the people who are responsible for this are sitting back and having a having a cocktail in the afternoon. Everything's fine. Anything else about this? Right, right. Yeah, you know, it's it's a fine line because we are uh, called to present the truth to people. The pr the truth by itself is offensive because it says you are inadequate to people and uh, you need a savior and they don't like that but um sometimes the way we do it is and i'm probably i've been guilty of that many times myself that the way i do it is makes the offense greater you know you, you want to do it without making the offense greater than it 
already is. It's offensive to to tell people that they need a savior or they're going to hell. <laughs> you know, that makes people upset. And so, uh, you know, our goal is to do it. You know, and pe that people were mad at Jesus. I mean, they killed him for it. You know, so uh, we know that if we follow the Lord, we will create offense just by speaking up. Right. Yeah, we we want to be as... We do. Yeah, because the sin nature resides within, and, and we, you know, because they come back at us with such vitriol. Yeah, I made a comment online about... Because um, I ran across uh, the passage in Leviticus about homosexuality and how, you know, how they should be, uh, you know, killed. And I just put a comment on Facebook that says, you know, this is never, ever going to be okay no matter how fashionable the world makes it. And, you know, my Christian friends all agreed. <laughs> but I got one, you know, flaming arrow shot at me from somebody who did not agree. And it was very vicious, you know. I just didn't respond. But what I said was true. It was not false. And I didn't say it meanly. But the truth hurts, <laughs> you know to people who don't agree. So, um, and, you know, the, the natural tendency is to is to write back and flamethrow that person, which I have done before. And hopefully I'm growing more in the Lord. Say, so that's not necessary. They heard the truth. Maybe the Spirit is convicting them now. Maybe that's why they responded this way. So, you know, just pray for that person. Let the Holy Spirit work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have had a close experience with homosexuality myself. Yeah. And uh, I don't understand it. And if you say something against it to those people, they get crazy mad. Crazy, crazy mad. It's not always Exactly. Yeah. The gospel does the work. And uh, the, really the Holy Spirit, you know, homosexuality is like any addiction. It is it is hard to get rid of very difficult, and you need the power of the Holy Spirit, and you need fellowship to help you uh, get out of it. And uh, so anyway, I forgot how we got on that, but <clears throat> we're now we're on section C. <laughs> Mordecai mourns for his people. So that's verses 4, 1 through 8. Let me read that part. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. 
He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her, and to order her to go unto the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. So I wonder if he felt guilty for triggering this. He may have. But in verse 1 and 2, Mordecai mourns publicly and loudly, but he did not enter the king's gate because there was a law against doing that. Especially if you're in sackcloth. You couldn't go into the king's gate in sackcloth. So um, then verse 3, in each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning. So all similar Jewish mourning was going on throughout the empire. And I'm sure this is going on in Judah also, where the you know exiles had returned and reestablished Mosaic Judaism. So then verse 4, Esther writhed in great anguish. So she was very sad too. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so he could come in. That's what she was doing. Because he's wearing sackcloth, he couldn't come in with sackcloth on. She sent him the proper attire so he could come in. He refused to come in. <laughs> Mordecai is just a, he's, he's kind of a pain in the neck, you know. And uh, he refused to come in. So then Esther sends Hathak to get more details, which was a eunuch which the king had assigned to her. And so Hathak went out, and then um, Mordecai gives Hathak in verses 7 and 8 the edict and tells him, after he told Esther not to tell them, he tells them that Esther is a Jew. So, um, yeah, so Mordecai, her uncle, unveils Esther's Jewishness, which he had told her to keep silent. It's understandable, you know, to, if the whole uh, nation is threatened with annihilation, that, you know, you do whatever you have to here. And then he asked her to plead with the king for all the Jews. He didn't really ask her. He ordered her. Okay, so he's still treating her as his daughter. And... um you know, the reply he got back was not what he wanted to hear. So this is section D, and it's verses 9 through 17, and I'll go ahead and read that since we're, they're going to buzz the buzzer on us and try to put us in time out. So chapter 4, verse 9, Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman, excuse me, who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these thirty days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house 
will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. That's a famous line from this book. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And this I will go in to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Esther turned the tables on him there. So Mordecai orders her. First he lets the cat out of the bag that, yes, she's a Jew too. Then he tells her to go into the king and plead with the king for the Jews. And uh, so, you know, it's just survival on his part. Um, but he's treating his uh, daughter poorly. But it's, uh, you know, very stressful circumstances. So we can understand that. I want to read you a box. Yeah, this is from the Quarterly. And it talked about the fate of uninvited guests to the king. The Greek historian Herodotus recorded an incident from the reign of Xerxes' father Darius that led to the execution of one of seven heroes who had put down a rebellion of the caste of magicians, the magus. Now the law was that all those who had taken part in the rising against the magus might enter unannounced into the king's presence unless he happened to be in private with his wife. So Interfernes would not have anyone announce him, but as he belonged to the seven, claimed it as his right to go in. The doorkeeper, however, and the chief usher forbade his entrance, since the king said, since the king they said was with his wife. Interfernes insisted on entering the throne room. When he did, he and his family were immediately taken away to be executed. So that's how they rolled in Persia, um, even if you're a hero. And Esther is reminding Mordecai of this. So then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape. You know, I've told on you. <laughs> and we know that the, the emotional attachment is tenuous between the king and the queen in Persia. We've seen that. Right. He, he, she could only see her husband when he called her. When he called her. And then Right. Yeah, and they had been married for five years now. They'd been married for five years, so she was well established as queen. But um, she could only see her husband when he called. And if he didn't call, she had to live in the harem with the concubines. And so, so in verse 14, we get an inkling of faith here from Mordecai. He says, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. So he has a, a vague sense of this promise of Genesis 12.3. Okay, those who curse you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will bless, that the Lord had promised to the Jews. And so we see here that he has some understanding of this. And then he points out that, you know, who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. You know, all the things that have happened before have been very weird. Vashti is deposed. 
the company, the country is scurred, you know, searched around for a bunch of pretty virgins. Esther is swept up in that into the king's harem, and she just happens to be chosen as the queen. Um, that is providential. All those things are providential. That's the Lord moving without anyone asking him to do it. And uh, Mordecai seems to understand that here. So um, then Esther replies to Mordecai, okay, this is her choice now. She can choose to either do it or not do it. She chooses to do it. She says, okay, I want you to have a total fast for three days. Tell all the Jews to have a total fast for three days. Do not eat, do not drink for three days. And me and my maids will do the same. And um, no, prayer is not mentioned. I'm sure, especially in Judah, there were a lot of prayers. In Judah and Jerusalem, there were many prayers when they heard about this. And maybe they prayed here, but there's no mention of it to us that they did that. They fasted, and I'm assuming that is to seek God. But you see how weak their faith is. I mean, there's no, there's no communication. There's no relationship between them and the Lord. It's just, uh, you know, it's like uh, there is no atheist in a foxhole. It's the same sort of thing, because they are threatened with total genocide here. And so they're reaching out for whatever, you know. And so they're, they're saying, well, let's pray. Or, well, they didn't say that. Let's fast. <laughs> let's fast and see if God will save us, you know. That, you know, that I, I, I am putting that into their mind as their thought, because we're not, it's not communicated to us here. So then Esther takes, takes charge and orders Mordecai this time. She is his queen, after all, <laughs> you know. And Mordecai obeys his queen. Verse 17, so Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. So now we're on a cliffhanger, and we have to wait till next week <laughs> to see what happens. That's right, to see what happens. So anyway, Lord, we thank you for Esther's choice. She chose to uh, be courageous and to uh, approach her husband. And so I pray that you'd help us to be courageous, especially with your command to evangelize the lost, which is probably the scariest thing you ask us to do. Um, in Jesus' name, amen.